If you have a copy of the Word of God, I invite you to turn to Psalm 119 this morning. Psalm 119. And to the section noon. It's verses 105 and following. Memory verses for this Sabbath school year are in this section. Last Lord's Day we looked at verses 97 through 104. This morning we look at 105 through 112. The more you study this psalm, you realize it's maybe not just as repetitious as you may think on first reading. Of course, these these words that are the heading of each section are the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So there is this uh, identification, there's a poetic, uh, certain poetic emphasis that's placed here with the first letter. Um, each letter sort of pulling together this idea and how it's structured with these letters in the Hebrew. But there's an emphasis on the Word of God. And we want to give consideration to verses 105 through 112. So let us hear the Word of the Lord. Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I have sworn, and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according unto thy word. Accept, I beseech thee, the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me thy judgments. My soul is continually in my hand. Yet do I not forget thy law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I erred not from thy precepts. Thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined mine heart to perform thy statutes always, even unto the end. This is God's Word. It is to be received by faith. May you receive it today as such. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, bless us in Thy Word. Give us those ears to hear. Come to us graciously. That we might hear Thy voice. To that end, Come and spoil every effort of the enemy. Advance thy kingdom in our hearts and in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is never enough for professing believers to pay lip service to the word of God. What I mean by lip service is something that comes up regularly in the Scriptures through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, if you were to go through the ministry of Christ, you will find Him addressing this shallow reception or belief in the Word of God. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount, where He is giving greater depth and reflection upon a shallow holding to God's Word. And it permeates his ministry, as we've said, and even you'll find it when you come to the letters to the churches in Revelation, where again he is lamenting over the fact that they're not really hearing the word. And he calls them to hear. Hear. We need to hear the word of God, constantly to hear the word of God. And we get exposed when we do not. The word of God is arguing the case that we must have a particular attention to what it says. Even the Apostle Paul, 
his desire for the people of God is that they might be transformed, and that transformation comes by what? The renewing of their mind. And the renewing of their mind is connected to the revealed will of God. That's what he says in Romans 12, verse 2, be not conformed to this world. That's obviously a threat, isn't it? It's a threat that the world will conform you, the world will dictate how to think, and the world will permeate your living because it controls your thoughts. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, let me ask you, in the past week, has your mind been renewed? Have you felt the influence of God's Word coming to your thoughts, what you hold within your mind, and the Word of God comes and confronts, and you find it being tailored, corrected, sometimes perfected, it's brought to greater light and understanding by exposure to the Word of God. If you're not in the Word of God, you will not have the renewing of your mind, and you won't know or experience what it is you're meant to as the Word of God confronts your life. The psalmist here, at the head of this section, perhaps, I think, no perhaps about it, is certainly one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known verse in this entire psalm. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now, in order for that to be the case, he must be in proximity to that light. It must be close to him. Now, I know we have lights today, the kind of lights that are almost, you know, almost like the sun in terms of they can just flood an entire area. But in the day of the psalmist, you didn't have that. When, when the sun went down, then you were left in darkness. And at best, you had these very weak forms of, of lamps and lights that would cast some kind of light before you. And in order to benefit from that light, it, you need it to be near to it. It needed to be in your hand. We, we don't really do that much today. I guess sometimes we maybe step outside and we put the little flashlight on on our cell phones, you know, to just make sure we don't stumble. But for the most part, we can flick a switch and have lights flood an entire area of where we're going. But for the psalmist, the sense is this, that the Word of God is near to me. It's in my hand. It's in my heart. It's in my life. And it's allowing me then to see the way step by step as I traverse through this world. In fact, it would seem to me that there's a historical aspect to what the psalmist is saying. It can't be dogmatic, but it would appear that there's something historical in his mind when he thinks of thy word as a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It would make sense to me that part of what is in his mind here is thinking back to his forefathers and their journeying around the wilderness in which as they made their way in circles around that area, that they were being guided, they were being led by a lamp, the lamp of God, that pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. As it moved, they moved. As it stopped, they stopped. And it was constantly guiding them. It was how they knew the way. It's how they kept safe amidst all the terrors and dangers of that place of the wilderness. The very last verse of Exodus. You think about this, this deliverance of God. What does He deliver them on to? He delivers them on to this experience of being led by God every step of the way. The last verse of Exodus tells us, the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day, and fire was on it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Here are people in bondage delivered by God, and God doesn't abandon them having delivered them. He stays with them. They experience the very promises that are so meaningful to us in the New Testament. That we are to disciple the nations. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Having saved us, He doesn't abandon us. And so it was true for the children of Israel. He doesn't abandon them. And so this exodus culminates 
in this language that he didn't abandon them. They're in the wilderness. They're traversing through that for that period, but he has not abandoned them. He is there. He is guiding, and he is shining light onto the way so that even if it moves at night, there's a light that guides them so they know they're going in the right path. So God and his light led them, and they were to follow that. And in following the lamp of God, if we can use that terminology, that light of God, that pillar of fire, and following that, they were at least in part, at least in that area, following God. They were obeying God. And this is what we also are to do. Ephesians 5 verse 1, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. Be followers of God. Young people, don't be followers of people in this world. That's what they want. They're desperate for your attention. They want your attention. They do everything in their power to gain your attention. And it's not because they have some real appreciation for you. It's because eyeballs mean dollars. Attention means income. That's how the world functions. And so we have those who are influencers and those who are followers. I'm not saying it's all entirely wrong, but I am saying be very careful because your primary, the one who has got to govern your life is God. Be followers of God. That's what children do. Eventually, of course, the children of Israel would come into the land of Canaan. They would no longer have that, that visible presence in that way. And then, of course, God's presence would be over the tabernacle, and there would also be that lamp within the holy place as well, the only light that was there. So I don't know exactly what may be in the mind of the psalmist. I can't be dogmatic. I, I am inclined to think more of the Exodus, but there were certain lamps. This is the point. There were certain lamps that were significant to the people of God. And we see the presence of God depicted in it. We see God's mercy and condescension and covenant love for His people in those lamps and in those lights. But what the psalmist then says is, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Now, for the children of Israel, it was God Himself. The visual presence of God in that pillar of fire was a lamp onto their feet and a light onto their path. But for the psalmist, the Word of God is. Now, he's not denying that God, if He comes in such a fashion, is the very lamp of His people and the light of His people, but He's living in a time where He doesn't have that. We argued the point, or at least we presented the possibility, that this psalm has been set in some time relating to the exile, in which case they don't have the visible worship of God. They don't have the temple. They're not enjoying the sacrifices. They're not being exposed to that. But what they do have still, thank God, was His Word. And His Word then takes on an even elevated sense within their hearts because without that which the priests were doing and so on, they would be totally devoid of any information that might benefit their souls. And so they become even more reliant on the Word of God. And the psalmist then is saying that this, this is critical. The Word. I may be in Babylon. I may be cut off from the place of public worship. I may not be able to enjoy the gathering of the saints congregating to worship our God. But I am not left entirely devoid of blessing. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Oh, how I imagine the Lord Jesus would have felt this. I imagine as he grew up and saw all the shortcomings in the synagogues and in the temple. And as those shortcomings became even more acutely 
concentrated towards him and its hatred and the animosity that he faced that he might have lamented over and over again over all that was there that was meant to be a blessing but the one thing that upheld him continually thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I can't trust these rabbis. These other spiritual leaders are distorting and by their commandments make the word of God of none effect. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And you may find yourself at some point in your existence where you have no reliable guidance. You don't have a pastor, you don't have a friend or a parent or someone else who you can trust to come alongside you. You may end up imprisoned, you may end up isolated for other reasons. Who knows what God may bring your way. And you may find that isolating effect and experience and come to realize that the only light you have is this. Word of God. And yet, what you will discover is it is sufficient. It is sufficient. That there is for us a comprehensive revelation that can satisfy our deepest longings and counsel us through our greatest trials and comfort us when no one else can. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Before I go any further, let me just lay it out plainly to you. In this wilderness of life, you must give yourself to the word of God. You must. If you ignore the word of God, you are ignoring, you are harming your own comfort. You're excluding yourself from the very consolation God has provided. I beg of you, in all seasons of life, read the Word and learn in the most trying times. It will be a lamp onto your feet and a light onto your path. title for the message this morning, A Light in the Darkness of Life. A Light in the Darkness of Life. Or you may even say the wilderness of life. That may bring the picture into view, especially the historic experience of the children of Israel. Of course, breaking down these sections isn't always easy. I was mulling over this quite some time before I was able to really order my thoughts. But we have three things I want us to consider here. For all my obligations... Right? We have this light in the darkness for all my obligations, for all my difficulties, and for the rest of my life. For all my obligations, for all my difficulties, and for the rest of my life. And that will form the structure of our thoughts here this morning. Beginning then, for all my obligations. Having looked at and pondered verse 105, we move on to 106. I have sworn... And I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. There are two things in looking at this. There's two verses I want us to think about, 106 and 108. But we'll look at 106 first. To help me obey God. My obligation to obey God. That's the idea. This is one of the first obligations here. The other one will be to worship God. But to obey God. 106. I have sworn and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments judgment. I have sworn. This causes a problem for some people who imagine that the Lord Jesus has forbidden any form of swearing, that all vows are off, and there's no way in which we can fashion a vow and it be acceptable to God. Their conclusion to that comes from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 34 through 37, but that's not what the Lord Jesus is addressing. The Lord Jesus there Excuse me, addresses frivolous vows, vows you make 
thoughtlessly, maybe even just in casual conversation, or evasive vows, where you make vows for the particular purpose of evading a responsibility or an obligation that God has placed upon you. Well, Jesus forbids such things, but he doesn't forbid vows. The Apostle Paul <clears throat> took a vow, Acts 21. And you can make a case, I, I would say, excuse me, <clears throat> this frog doesn't want to go. <clears throat> I think you can make a case <clears throat> that when our Lord instituted the Lord's table, that there's a form of a vow even he makes there. There's least vow-like language. I can't be dogmatic, but just to remind you of that language in Luke 22, verses 15 and 16, he said unto them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. I understand that could be simply him saying what's going to happen, not necessarily vowing. But there is certain a sense of vowing there. I'm not going to participate in this way until all the work is done. All my people are gathered together, which is wonderful. And made me think of a couple of things. What's going on here? Is, is he vowing? Is, is it a vow? Or is it more like what the priests were required to do? When the priests, the Levitical priests, would participate in their, their work and their function, they were forbidden from drinking wine. And I wonder if that, this is part of what he's getting at too. This, this is off, all bets are off. It's, or I cannot participate in this way anymore as I'm about to go and engage in priestly work at the right hand of the majesty on high and depicting then the Levitical work interceding for the people. I'm not sure, but there <clears throat> certainly then a sense of, of vow language there. I will not eat, I will not anymore eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Whatever the case, there's, there's no problem with, with vows. Solemn, judicial, and religious oaths offer no offense or sin to God, provided they're in accordance to God's word and that we can reasonably be expected to fulfill our obligations. We're not taking vows of things we could never do. That would be foolish and wrong. Vows are honorable. In a world that's fallen, where men cannot be easily trusted, they are honorable. Vows of truthfulness in court, loyalty in marriage, commitment in ministerial ordination. These are honorable things. But looking at the language again, I have sworn, and I will perform it. I will keep thy righteous judgments. Here the psalmist is committed not just to reading God's Word, but doing God's Word. He is committed. He's saying this, I, I, I put myself under obligation. This is my duty. This is the calling of God upon my life. And since it is the call of God, and it is the right thing and honorable thing for me to do, I swear to it, I will perform it. This is serious language, but it is honorable. Again, we must see our Lord Jesus Christ depicted in this and thinking of the things that he vowed to do, his commitment to do the Father's will, his obligation, his entering into covenant that all that the Father has given me, I am going to perform what is necessary to redeem them, to save them, to reconcile them. And so you see the commitment of the Lord Jesus Christ in this language here. I have sworn and I will perform it. How thankful we are for the one who had such commitment to do what was necessary to save us. But we are then to follow in such footsteps that we should have a commitment that the Word of God matters, that what it says has an impact. So that when you, when you read this, Beloved, when, when you read it, when we read it together collectively, when you read it on your own, you read it as a family, when you read it, it's not making suggestions. Nor is it simply telling you how to avoid the bad things. That this is good and this is bad. Right? So hear all the bad things, avoid all the bad things, and, and, and here's the good things, let me do the good things. 
There's an element of truth there, but it goes deeper than that. Paul, when he prayed for the Philippians, what did he pray? That he may approve things that are excellent. I want you to be able to, to truly discern excellent things. So this goes beyond knowing what's good and bad. This goes to knowing what's, what's good, maybe, and what's best. That this may be okay, but this is the better thing to do. This is even more honorable to God. And making judgments like that, being able to discern differences there. You can go out into a completely pagan environment and tell them, is murder wrong? Yes, murder's wrong. Wrongful taking of life is wrong. When it comes to the particulars of living for the glory of God, it goes beyond that. And we are living in a time where men and women and boys and girls are woefully, woefully ignorant of how to live the Christian life, of how to live for God's glory. And I don't know if any of us avoid that condemnation. We are all very much ignorant. Well, the psalmist recognizing his obligation, he wants to obey God. This is how he expresses it. But also then, to help him worship God, not just obey, but worship, which is a form of obedience, of course, but more explicit, verse 108. Accept, I beseech thee, the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me thy judgments. So when he speaks here of free will offerings, he's not meaning, just to be clear, uh, that you can offer whatever you like, you know, of his own will, just give anything to God. That's, the free will is not like just doing whatever you want. It is language that expresses those offerings that are over and above what is expected. There were things God expected, things that were necessary. And in the Levitical system and the sacrifices, there were things that had to be done every single day. And then the individuals had obligations as well to carry out based on their, their sins and whatever other breaches of God's word that they may be guilty of, they were to offer these things to God. But here, here he is dealing not with those things. Again, if, if we're right, if this is an exile psalm, he can't do those things. He can't actually do the things he's obligated to do under normal circumstances. But he is bringing, he's bringing over and above what even may be required of him, that which brings honor to God, that shows his love for God, free will offerings. It's bringing to God that which is, you don't have to do, but he wants to do. Of course, he's speaking here in terms of free will offerings of his mouth. Because again, if he can't actually do anything physical, if he can't offer anything on an altar, then this is the best he can do. It's of a speech. But how does he do that? How does he bring acceptable additional offerings to God? It must be guided by the word. Accept, I beseech thee, the free will offerings of my, my mouth, O Lord, and teach me thy judgments. The connection here between being taught in order that he might offer is not to be missed. He needs God to instruct him, to guide him. Now, when we come to bring the free will offerings of our mouths, right? When we come to sing, that's essentially partly what we're doing. We're bringing offerings to God. Sometimes you might find yourself expressing song that was unplanned and feeling yourself drawn out to worship Him in language that wasn't even scheduled. But you find yourself just singing and praising and it's coming out of you because you're so thankful. And you're just recognizing His mercy and even in the language of, of a little chorus, thank you Lord for saving my soul. Free will offerings of your mouth. But even in these, they, we, we must be taught. The Apostle Paul brings this out in Colossians 3. 
Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Before you can teach and admonish through worship, before you can sing with grace truly in the heart, the word of Christ must dwell in you richly, abundantly. It must be gripping your heart. It must be permeating your being. It must be governing your thought. It must be leading you in your expressions of praise. The Word. If it is not, then how do you know what you're offering to God is appropriate? The Lord lamented in Hosea's day, Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They just don't know. Is that true today? Do you assess the church in America? And then as you look there, come back to yourselves to make sure that we are not guilty of the same. Do you see a devastation that is occurring? The destruction unfolding through lack of knowledge? You, you do see that sometimes it can be helpful to move around a little as long as it doesn't become grounds for pride, you end up praying like the, the Pharisee. I thank thee I'm not like this, man. And you're just a wretch. But God's sparing us from that spirit. It can be helpful to move around and see things. It was a shock for me, for example, when I ended up dealing with a couple in Canada, who professed to be believers and were cohabiting. Imagining this was perfectly acceptable. I had never seen that with my eyes before, never come across it. <laughs> I'm like, how do I not give some kind of exclaim here as I find out these details? I was able, thankfully, to talk to them and eventually see them married. But that, 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 that underlines, it underlined for me that how people are destroyed through lack of knowledge. They didn't even know. And for all the shortcomings in Northern Ireland, at least there's enough of a, of a 11 that's still there, at least there was, where... You would you'd be hard-pressed to find that, that people would openly, openly, without hiding it, be living together unmarried and professing the name of Christ. You'd be hard-pushed hard to find it. The only reason then it happens is through a lack of knowledge, a lack of knowledge. People are destroyed through a lack of knowledge. That's just one very visible area. But think of all the possible areas. It goes beyond what we can imagine. The areas, the effect... And we don't avoid this because we are in a biblically illiterate time and we too are shaped and molded by our culture and we too find it hard at times to assess and make correct judgments and all of it comes back to the lack of the Word of Christ dwelling richly in our hearts. And so you find it then working itself out in public worship. I was reading James Montgomery Boyce. Boyce was the a well-known, respected pastor of 10th Presbyterian, it's a very historic church in Philadelphia from 1968 until his death at uh, the year 2000. So the, you're going back 24, almost 24 years or whatever. At least where he make, makes this remark, I don't know exactly when he preached this. 
He said, there's nothing more important for Christian growth and the health of the church than sound Bible teaching. Yet sadly, serious Bible teaching is being widely neglected in our day. You see the words he's using there. Not that it's not available, but it's being deliberately neglected. It's being neglected. Even in so-called evangelical churches, instead of Bible teaching, people are being fed a diet of superficial pop psychology, self-help therapy, feel-good stimulants and entertainment, and the ignorance of the Bible in the churches is appalling. He went on then to address public worship and music specifically. There is much emotional music and frequently repeated words and slogans in churches nowadays, but as I travel around the country speaking in evangelical churches, I have noticed the loss of the great hymns of Christianity. This might be all right if the church's hymns were being replaced by better ones. But who can suppose that this is really the case? The new hymns are not better. They are usually trite. He goes on to say that they're man-centered and often misleading. The downfall of our musical praise is related to our sad, pitiful ignorance of the Bible, and it will not be corrected until we recover some biblical depth. Now again, not everything is approved simply by being old. Not everything is to be dismissed simply by being new. But when you're living in a biblically illiterate time and people don't even know what they don't know, the danger is when they take pen to paper and they harness their gifts that may be indeed very grand and undeniable in certain areas, but do they really know what they're doing? Accept, accept, verse 108, indicating that God may not. He may not. He's not obligated to take what we offer. He's not obligated to see what you present and say, of course, with open arms. Like some kind of good well place where you can dump all the stuff you don't want. <laughs> and they'll take it and try to make use of it and sell it on. That's not what you do when you come to God. We must keep this in mind. Does he accept it? Accept, I beseech thee, the free will offerings of my mouth, the praises from a heart of gratitude, the additional worship of my life. O oh Lord, and teach me thy judgments. I must be taught if I am to do this aright. So, for all our obligations, we have this light. For all our obligations, of which there are two, obeying God, worshiping God. Then our difficulties, for all our difficulties. And there are three here. First, in various afflictions. There are various afflictions. Verse 107. I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according unto thy word. Now, the psalmist has already dealt with affliction. If you go back to verse 67, you can see well-known verses where he, he deals with, with affliction. Verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept thy word. Verse 71, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. Verse 75, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thy unfaithfulness hast afflicted me. Those are powerful truths. Now he's dealing with it again. I am afflicted very much. Now, those of you who have borne affliction will know 
that the one thing about affliction that you don't really think about much until you're in it is how exhausting it can be. When you hear of an affliction, forms of ill health or family trouble, whatever it might be, you think of the, the, in the acute of, of knowing that you're dealing with this, this sickness or you're dealing with a wayward child or, or some other trial, maybe even economic difficulties at times. But the real hardship is how wearying it is over time. It exhausts. As it goes on, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, it exhausts. And the psalmist realizes that the answer to the exhaustion brought on by affliction is the word. Quicken me. Enliven me. Strengthen me. Give energy to me. According unto thy word. Suffering is unavoidable. Afflictions are unavoidable. If it helps you to remember it, that you can think of categories of affliction. There's the common, the corrective, and the constructive. The common, the corrective, and the constructive. These are various forms of afflictions that we go through. The common are just the, the common experiences to all men. The difficulties. The sweat of your brow shall you eat bread is a common affliction. Bringing forth children in sorrow is a common affliction. There's no avoiding it. It's part of the curse. It's the world in which we live. Then there are afflictions that come that are corrective. Forms of, of discipline to address problem areas because of disobedience or whatever else. The Lord comes as a corrective, brings affliction as an instrument. But then there are also those that are constructive. I was thinking of Matthew Henry's, what he observed in relation to the constructive. As Matthew Henry once said, extraordinary afflictions are not always the punishment of extraordinary sins, but sometimes the trial of extraordinary graces. The trial of extraordinary graces. But here is one who's burning brightly But oh, how I want the world to see it even more. I'm going to afflict even more heavily so that that grace that is abundant in them shines even more. It's constructive affliction. These are experiences. And what a timely peace the choir brought to us, what God ordains, is always good. Richard Sibbs believed the same, that Puritan. Sibbs wrote, along the lines of what the choir sang this morning, whatsoever is good for God's children they shall have it. For all is theirs to further them to heaven. Therefore, if poverty be good, they shall have it. If disgrace be good, they shall have it. If crosses be good, they shall have them. If misery be good, they shall have it. For all is ours to serve for our greatest good. And some of your afflictions, you should seek a doctor. You have medical issues, go and seek a doctor. But don't miss 
Do not miss what God is also doing. The lesson He is also applying to your heart. Don't be simply quickened by the news that there's, there's medicine for my problem. Be enlivened by the Word because there's going to come a day when there isn't medicine for your problem. It won't exist. It will not be there. There will not be a tonic for what you're about to go through. Then what do you do when the doctor doesn't have the prescribed answer for it? Have all your joy taken away? Sink in misery? Lament? Recognize what the psalmist recognized. I'm afflicted very much. Quicken me. Quicken me, O Lord, according unto thy word. I was just reading last night Isaiah 40. That's how it ends, isn't it? He's coming with words of comfort amidst all of their trials and their, their difficulties. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. He comes then and tells them, They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. They're waiting on God, hearing His Word. The Word, where the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but when the Word of the Lord will endure forever. And those promises that are undergirded, they're punctuated by the Word of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Language like that, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. That's what he's talking about right here. Waiting on God and hearing His Word. Being strengthened to soar. Your spirit soars in the blessings that are yours in Christ. There are various dangers as well. Not just afflictions, but dangers. Verse 109. My soul is continually in my hand, yet do I not forget thy law. I must be quick. Here's language like the idiom we might use. I'm taking my life in my hands. It's a sense of imminent danger. Here he says that despite this, and of course danger is a distraction. But not for this one. Even in the midst of it, he doesn't forget the word. Never. You think of Christ. <laughs> think of Christ setting his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem. I'm taking my life in my hands. Yet do I not forget thy law. And then various enemies. 110. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I erred not from thy precepts. They are very real enemies to the people of God. They will have their opinions and their worldview, and they will try to pour it into you. They will want you to comply and want you to get on board their plans. And they will lay their snares. Sometimes consciously laying snares, they, they want to destroy you. Like how they came to the Lord Jesus Christ with words, trying to trap him and his words. They will do that. Sometimes unwittingly laying snares. Like a well-meaning friend at school who simply says to you, hey, why not come to join us for this thing or that thing, whatever it might be. In all honesty, just wanting to invite you to what they think is a good time, but it is not a place where you belong. They lay a snare. You don't want to err from anything that God has given in His Word. Finally then, for the rest of my life, we have these, all our obligations, there's a light for us, all our difficulties, there's a light for us. Then for the rest of our lives. The letter, Nun, is actually found as a Hebrew word once in the Old Testament. And it's found in Psalm 72, verse 17. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued 
as long as the sun. A man shall be blessed in him, all nations shall call him blessed. For those who don't know, Hebrew letters have meaning. They're not just like our letters, they're just letters and they have a functional purpose. But there's more than that to Hebrew language. The letters themselves have meaning. And you have then this letter functioning as a word in Psalm 72, 17, and it is translated, shall be continued, ongoing. And you have this come out then in the last verses, verse 111. Thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. Here you see him taking them on forever because they are his inheritance. That's the idea of the word heritage. Your word is like an inheritance to me. Inheritances, generally speaking, are valuable things, things that we appreciate. And the greatest gift then that God has given to you, put into your hand, aside from the very salvation you possess, is his word. And the psalmist understands that. Thy testimonies, the word of God, I have taken like an inheritance. It is mine to be treasured. Not to be ignored. Not to be like a piece of land that you just neglect, that someone left to you and you say, I don't care for that. But to be prized. They are the rejoicing of my heart. So you can, you can strip me of my lands, as may be the case again. Remember what we said? Exile? Maybe they are. Maybe, they, maybe there's a, an element of that, and they're, they're away from their lands, and they're away from what they have as, a, as, a, as an inheritance in terms of land and so on, and the tribes. But what does he take instead? I don't have my land. I don't have that which belongs to me as part of the, being a tribe of Israel. I don't have that. For thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever. Now sometimes in life you will be stripped of things that you assumed you were going to have forever. They'll be taken from you. They will. And you're going to experience it in ways you never anticipated. So whether it be your health or your wealth or family members in your life, there's an assumption that the older will be taken before us, but it can be a very misplaced assumption. So what becomes your inheritance? What do you prize? What is it that comes and fills that void, as it were? This is the rejoicing of my heart. Not the things that men can take away. When they come in and invade our land and they take us into a foreign territory, we no longer have our plots of land. We don't have our inheritance that was given unto us. What then? This is what the psalmist learns. Your word I take as an heritage. Your word I take as an inheritance. Oh, what, what example there is. And then, not only because they're his inheritance, but because they're vital to his perseverance. The word is vital to his perseverance. I have inclined mine heart to perform thy statutes all the way even on to the end. It is never irrelevant. It never goes out of fashion. It never becomes something that no longer has value. To the end, I am going to hold on to this. To the end, it matters. Let me ask you, dear child of God, listen now, what place does this book have in your life? I'm not asking you what the books that talk about this book have in your life. 
I don't mind. And I encourage sound, beneficial reading. I fear far too many read all sorts of things, sometimes tied to the Bible, but not the Bible itself. This book is meant to be everything to us. The Roman Catholics like to say, oh, don't talk to us about our venerating of Mary. You venerate a book. That's what they say sometimes. As if the two are equal. This is the very word of God. This, this is how you meet with God. This is how Jesus says you're going to experience him and see him. It testifies of me. You want to know about me? I'm here. I'm here in these pages. You want to know the real Jesus? You have to be in this. You want to be familiar with his mind? You have to be taking it on board. You want to be changed and transformed by the renewing of your mind. You want to be kept from being like the world and all of its folly. You must be in this book. If there was no folly, if we didn't live in the 21st century, if there wasn't all the garbage that's being poured out by the media, you'd still fall miserably without the word. You don't need it to be bad out there to make a mess. But it's not helping. <laughs> and so it's incumbent even more that you're in this book and you meditate in the law of the Lord. Like we sang in Psalm 1. Blessed, happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of the scornful but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Beloved, Get a hold of the value of this book. The people actually gave their lives for, so you might have it in your mother tongue and read for yourself the very word of God and have it as a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. This world is dark. God has given a light. You switch it off when you ignore it. May God help us. Let's bow together in prayer. The Lord loves you. He loves you, child of God. He loves you so much. And he has so much to say to you. And his word is not a dead word. It's a living word. So that in the darkness and wilderness of your life, he will make his word come alive to your circumstances. And he'll fill your heart with exceeding precious promises. Read it. Lord, we pray, give us an appetite, a delight for thy word. We pray that our children would love your word. Please, oh God, give our children a love for your word. Make them sit up when it's read. Make them to sob when they hear it's condemnation against their sins. Give them penitent hearts. Give them the peace of all the gospel promises made over to sinners 
in Jesus Christ. Please, Lord, inflame our hearts with love for thy word. And if they take everything from us, if we have thy word, we have a lamp onto our feet. We have a light onto our path. We have a true inheritance in this world. Bless us. Be with us. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be the abiding portion of all the people of God now and evermore. Amen.